Welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast, interdisciplinary conversations about new works in the broad world of business research. I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. If you like what you hear today, please consider subscribing to the podcast or sharing with others who might like it too. And if you have ideas for future episodes, let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Our guest today is Brian Feinstein, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. We'll be discussing his article, In-Group Favoritism as Legal Strategy, Evidence from FCPA Settlements, which he co-authored with William Heaston and Guillermo Siqueira G. Cavallo, both PhD students at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. The article is forthcoming in the American Business Law Journal. I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Brian, welcome to the Business Scholarship Podcast. Thanks so much for having me, Andrew. Brian, your article is an investigation of enforcement practices and the practices of firms that are facing potential enforcement and the lawyers that they choose to represent them in those enforcement actions. And you're focused on the context of enforcement under the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act, the FCPA. Could you introduce the FCPA to listeners? What sorts of conduct is that statute trying to prevent? And why would a CEO, if news comes that the company might have a FCPA problem, why might that be an especially dreaded thing to hear as compared to potentially any other legal or enforcement problem a company might have? Oh, sure. So Congress passed the Foreign Corrupt Practices Act in 1977 to outlaw bribery by American businesses of foreign officials. The law was later amended to include in its scope bribery by foreign companies of foreign officials as well, where there's some U.S. nexus, usually some act that occurs in the U.S. that's in furtherance of the foreign bribe. It was an unusual law at the time of its passage. Of course, it had long been illegal under U.S. law to bribe a U.S. official, but to extend that prohibition to foreign officials was pretty close to novel in the 1970s. So only Sweden had a similar law on the books. But the world in the ensuing decades has caught up. And today, the U.S. is no longer an outlier. It's not a laggard either, but there are some countries that go even further. There's dozens of countries overall, including all OECD members, that criminalize transnational bribery. And then there are also international conventions against bribery. Basically, the FCPA has two major provisions. Uh, there's an anti-bribery provision. It's illegal to offer, to pay, or to promise to pay money or anything else of value to a foreign official for purposes of obtaining or retaining business. And then there's also an accounting provision. Some U.S. companies have to implement accounting controls. And the thinking here is that if companies need to keep accurate books, they're not going to pay bribes. Pretty simple on its surface, but once you get a little bit beneath that surface, there's quite a bit of ambiguity. For instance, under a 1988 amendment to the law, there's now an exception for grease payments. So these are generally low-dollar payments to facilitate timely performance of routine government tasks. One could apply for a government contract and then wait months in the queue for an official to consider your application. Or you could just pay that official and the official would pocket the payment, the equivalent of a few hours wages to expedite the application. Now, of course, by lay definition, that is a bribe. But in some countries, there's not a norm against it. It's just accepted as a part of doing business. So the line now between a grease payment that's legal under the SCPA and a bribe that's illegal isn't so clear. So already, if you're a CEO listening, you might be sweating a little bit. And I think, Andrew, you're right that CEOs might especially dread hearing the news that they may be subject to FCPA scrutiny. 
really over and beyond scrutiny under other corporate criminal or white collar laws. And to begin with, that's because even hearing that your company might have an FCPA problem means that the company already does have an FCPA problem in a sense. If the CEO thinks that the Department of Justice might break charges, it's best for the CEO to open an internal investigation now when it's in the might stage and report the findings to the government. That way, prosecutors would credit the company's cooperation and not view the CEO, who, if the CEO has already started to dread this, you can assume has some knowledge of potential foreign corrupt practices. If the investigations opened up, the DOJ wouldn't view the CEO, presumably, as complicit. These internal investigations are costly. It's about $1.8 million per month in attorney and consultant fees on average for an average investigation length of over three years. And then, of course, if the internal investigation uncovers FCPA violations, the potential penalties are pretty steep. There has been maybe thinking about it towards the high end. For instance, in 2020, a Goldman Sachs agreed to pay $2.7 billion in criminal and civil penalties to settle an FCPA matter. It also had to disgorge $600 million in revenue. And then, of course, it didn't get its bribes paid back. And that's $1.6 billion in bribes that it paid. And I could tell a similar story with other blue chip companies, Airbus, Siemens, and many others. So I, I think the hypothetical CEO that you mentioned should know that even these large, respected blue chip companies engage in corrupt practices and end up paying dearly for it. There's been a massive increase in enforcement actions this century over the past 20 years, that is. The three largest FCPA settlements all occurred in the last four years. And these are all, like the Goldman Sachs settlement, multi-billion dollar settlements. Even the average settlement last year was for $120 million. There's also, although rare, the prospect of imprisonment for individual offenders, even for CEOs. The CEO of Kellogg, Brown & Root, which at the time was a subsidiary of Halliburton, was sentenced to 30 months imprisonment for FCPA violations. And for the individuals that receive a prison sentence, the average sentence length is a little over two and a half years. I think there's many reasons for CEOs to worry if their companies may have engaged in farm corrupt practices. I like the phrase that you use that if a CEO thinks that he or she has an FCPA problem, there is an FCPA problem because that does immediately lead the need to start an internal investigation, which, as you note, is incredibly costly. And presumably the folks, the law firm that's doing the investigation might also have a role, a part in negotiating some resolution with the government and presenting some of the findings of the investigation to the government. Of course, there are a lot of great law firms out there that are all happy to charge high fees for this service. And your article really investigates who firms are hiring for this investigative, this defense work. Could you talk a little bit about the research questions that you and your co-authors had going into this paper? And would you situate that set of questions into the existing literature and some issues that might be implicated around corporate enforcement and how that is practiced both on the defense and the government side? The paper grew out of a conjecture that my co-authors and I had that due to the nature of FCPA enforcement, and you just, I think, zeroed in on this need for internal investigations first and foremost. So due to this need for internal investigations and other characteristics of FCPA enforcement, relationships between defense counsel and prosecutors could matter a great deal. As you just mentioned, most of these matters involve an internal investigation where the company pays a law firm, and as you alluded to, pays a lot of money to a law firm to conduct an exhaustive probe into its practices. That law firm then presents the results of that investigation to the Department of Justice, sometimes to the SEC as well. 
And then defense counsel and prosecutors negotiate a settlement. Typically, that'd be a non-prosecution or a deferred prosecution agreement to resolve the matter. The settlements involve a monetary payment and promises to implement new compliance measures in the future. The bottom line here is that the vast majority of these matters conclude with a settlement. Even compared to other white-collar and corporate criminal matters, a large portion of FCPA matters settle. And my co-authors and I observe that these resolutions are really grounded so strongly in trust between prosecutors and defense counsel. The FCPA bar, both prosecutors and defense counsel, is a relatively small club, centered to an unusual degree in Washington. That has the potential to foster personal relationships among repeat players to a degree that may be unusual in other white-collar matters. And prosecutors really do rely on defense counsel's claims. Do they believe the findings in defense counsel's internal investigation? Prosecutors can't directly observe that. They can't get under the hood and look at the data and sources that defense counsel used to compile that investigative report. To some extent, they have to take it on faith. And of course, it's just prosecutors and defense counsel in the room. There's really trivial judicial involvement. And that means there's no judicial check on this behavior. So based on those characteristics of FCPA matters, we thought there's at least the potential for personal assessments to matter a great deal. Basically for prosecutors to ask, does defense counsel seem trustworthy? And research in social psychology has taught us that can be a dangerous question. There are studies that show that people are more likely to have a positive view of those that share their race, their religion, or their gender. In the criminal law context, Professor Stephanie Holmes Didwania has a really large-end study showing that when defendants and prosecutors share the same gender, defendants receive an 8% shorter sentence than otherwise similar defendants who are up against a prosecutor of a different gender. 8%, that's a pretty substantial difference. And then there's a growing body of research showing that people demonstrate in-group bias for those that share their partisan attachment. People who identify as Democrats or Republicans tend to view their co-partisans positively and members of the other party negatively. That's true in a host of experimental and observational settings, whether the person is evaluating job applicants or playing a trust-based game like a prisoner's dilemma or thinking about potential romantic partners. Social scientists call this in-group favoritism affective polarization. So take these two elements together, the importance of trust and positive affect in FCPA settlement negotiations and the social psychological findings that people tend to trust on their co-partisans more than others. We wondered whether FCPA defendants could exploit affective polarization. So basically, our hypothesis here is that the political views of FCPA attorneys whom corporate defendants hire are going to be positively correlated with prosecutors and other DOJ leaders' views. With those conjectures and questions in mind, could you talk about the data and the methods that you used? What were some of the key findings from the data and what are some limitations on those findings that you might caution us about? We examined all FCPA enforcement actions against corporate defendants from 2001 to mid-2019. So it's 138 actions in all, which we obtained from this terrific publicly available data set called the Corporate Prosecution Registry. It's assembled by Brandon Garrett and John Ashley. And then for each of these 138 actions, we identified the first listed defense attorney on the settlement document. We then identified the highest ranking prosecutor and, if applicable, the U.S. attorney that was listed on these documents as well. And so once we had the identities of these folks, of these prosecutors and defense attorneys, we needed an estimate for their political ideologies. 
We used a donation-based score that was compiled by political scientist Adam Bonica. Bonica used Federal Election Commission data recording 15 million political donors over a 36-year span. Then he records those donors on a liberal to conservative scale. You gave $200 to Joe Biden and $200 to Bernie Sanders. His measure would place you midway between Biden and Bernie on this. Using this method, we obtained ideological scores for the senior prosecutor for 127 of these 138 actions and for the first listed defense attorney for 119 of these actions. So it turns out FCPA lawyers tend to be political donors. So we were able to obtain these scores for both groups. And what we found first is that defense attorneys and prosecutors' ideologies are closely correlated. For instance, when the chief of the DOJ fraud section is relatively conservative based on his or her pattern of political giving, we see a rightward shift among lead defense lawyers. And when the fraud section chief is relatively liberal, we see a corresponding leftward shift. And then second, defense attorney ideologies vary based on presidential administration. So during the Obama years, the ideological distribution of defense attorneys is markedly liberal. So if you picture a histogram, a bell curve of the ideologies of folks that corporate defendants choose as their first listed defense attorney, it skews left during the Obama administration. In fact, the median defense attorney during the Obama years is about one standard deviation left of the median donor in Bonica's database. And then during the George W. Bush and Trump administrations, the median defense attorney shifts well to the right. A little hard to describe on a podcast. I do hope you take a look at the paper, but it really is a, a very striking difference in these two distributions. And it's difference in means, the difference in variances are both statistically significant at the conventionally accepted levels. You don't really need to get into fancy stats. You can look at the two distributions and just notice they are very different. So those are the two basic findings. And Andrew, you also asked about uh, limitations on those findings. And I think there are several. So for one, and maybe this is obvious, but the results suggest only that corporate defendants perceive that they'll benefit from hiring a line counsel. We can't analyze and we don't analyze the outcomes of those FCPA matters compared to some counterfactual world where the defendant hires a non-aligned lawyer. So we can't test whether these defendants' choices actually pay off. Now, we think there's reason to think the decisions pay off. Corporate defendants presumably are legally sophisticated. The largest are multi-billion dollar international corporations with large in-house legal teams and uh, deep relationships with multiple white collar law firms. So the fact that they're engaged in this behavior is telling. It suggests that they perceive a benefit. But still, I want to caution that we can't prove there actually is a benefit to hiring a line counsel. All we can show is that defense attorneys engage in this activity. We can't show whether it pays off. And second, we can't disentangle whether political orientation or some other characteristic that's closely connected to political orientation is really what's driving the train here. So political orientation is closely tied to your demographic profile, where you live, what kind of music you listen to, what kinds of humor you find funny. Really, a variety of factors is intertwined with political identity. So we can't say whether defendants are selecting counsel based on politics or on some sociocultural feature that's correlated with politics. 
you consider a few causal pathways for why clients, why defendants and FCPA matters might want to hire counsel who are aligned on ideological grounds with prosecutors. Could you walk us through those potential causal pathways with kind of the proviso, as you mentioned, that they are only potential and we can't really see if there's been some effects from these decisions and the counterfactual of non-ideologically aligned counsel were hired by defendants? We focus on two potential causal pathways. The first is put plainly that politics is driving these results. We have this literature that I gestured to earlier in social psychology, really in a host of settings showing that Democrats really do favor other Democrats and Republicans favor other Republicans when you set everything else equal in these experimental settings. So given that literature, it's easy to see how the same could be true here concerning legal settlement negotiations how the very fact that there's a Democrat sitting across the table from another Democrat is going to be advantageous to the company. The second potential causal pathway that we mention is the one that I alluded to a moment ago, the possibility that some other set of sociocultural features is driving the results. Basically, defendants are selecting counsel that are going to vibe with prosecutors. Vibe is a word that I've heard a lot this summer, not really in youth culture, but even that term has entered my consciousness. And that's what this could be, just vibes in a sense. So political alignment here is epiphenomenal. Prosecutors might mesh with the defense counsel because they just seem similar in some atmospheric way. The fact, as I alluded to earlier, that Democrats and Republicans are likely to live in different communities, pursue different hobbies, attend different houses of worship, and associate with just different cultural signifiers like clothing brands or cars. All of that is closely meshed together. And disentangling that tightly coiled set of traits from political views can be an impossible task. So essentially, the second pathway is there's just, just some atmospheric connection that's correlated with politics that defense counsel and prosecutors have. And when corporate defendants select defense counsel, they want to, to put it simply, select counsel that are going to vibe with the prosecutor. Now, I think regardless of which of these causal pathways you think it is that's driving the results, we think the results are noteworthy either way, because none of these factors, whether it's politics or some sociocultural factor, none of this is legally relevant. So if any of these factors bear on attorney selection, we think it raises questions concerning potential bias in an anti-corruption statute. The study, again, of course, was focused on FCPA matters. Do you have any expectation or thoughts about whether these findings can be externalized to other enforcement areas like fraud or environmental issues or fair credit housing? And some of that might be in the DOJ and some of it might be in civil regulatory agencies. And whether you have a thought on this front or not about how these results can be externalized to other settings, is this maybe an avenue that you and your co-authors might pursue in the future? Or do you have advice for others who might want to investigate whether a similar effect can be seen in other areas of enforcement? I have mixed views here concerning the potential generalizability of these findings. So on one hand, I emphasized some unique characteristics of the FCPA context. There's this particular importance of trust in evaluating internal investigations. There's this almost complete absence of judicial involvement. And there's the geographic concentration of the FCPA bar, a relatively small group in Washington, D.C. All of these factors could increase the value to defendants of strategically selecting counsel in a way that's not apparent in some of the other contexts you mentioned, because those areas of law don't share this particular mix of attributes that leads to the centrality of trust in FCPA investigations. 
On the other hand, what we're positing regarding defendants exploiting in-group favoritism isn't unique to the SCPA. Social psychology shows that effective polarization is just a basic human bias, that we're talking about a set of cognitive biases that are deep-rooted, and there's no reason to think it wouldn't be exploitable in other contexts, even if it's not exploitable to the same extent. One might say, in choosing the SCPA for our study, we picked an easy case, you could say, to put it bluntly. We, this is low-hanging fruit. If we're going to see a strategic selection of counsel based on effective polarization, the context we're most likely to see it, I would argue, would be the SCPA. I do think there's value in extending the study to other areas of law, though, because doing so would allow for cross-subject comparisons and thus could potentially offer insights into the extent to which various features matter. So I mentioned three features of the FCPA, the importance of trust in evaluating internal investigations, the lack of judicial involvement, and the concentration of the bar in Washington, D.C. If one were to extend our study to other enforcement areas where, say, two of these three features are present and the third is absent, that could offer insights into what particular feature matters for driving these results. And that could potentially lead to policy solutions. If we find that other areas of law that are also, there's a lot of trust and there's not much judicial involvement, but the matters are spread across the country and not concentrated in DC. If we find that effective polarization has a lot lower effect in those areas, the policy solutions could involve moving FCPA prosecutions to other jurisdictions, say, or greater involvement of the U.S. Attorney's Office and less involvement by main justice. I think my advice, this is a long-winded way of saying my advice for somebody looking to extend this study or conduct a similar study, would be to look for a policy area where some of the characteristics of FCPA investigations are met, but others are not. And that, would, that variance would allow us to really tease out what are the particular features of a criminal matter that can lead to effective polarization to be important. So it sounds like the jury's still out on the potential to generalize or the extent to which these results can be generalized to other areas. In light of your findings, and you talk about some policy solutions, but what policy implications would you see for either corporate enforcement generally or FCPA enforcement specifically in terms of if this a sort of hiring is happening? Is this something that we should be concerned about as a public? Is this something that enforcement agencies should be concerned about? What are the policy implications that you see here? I think it's something we should be concerned about. There's a potential integrity risk here if these sorts of matters are being resolved in a way that's not based on the law and the facts, but is based on some extent to personal relationships. And there's, of course, an irony that this is happening in a statute that's targeting corruption. In terms of what to do regarding policy implications, it's challenging. Uh, so we contend that we've identified a cognitive bias at work. It's deep-rooted and perhaps universal. How do you correct for that? It's challenging. I think many of the policy prescriptions that we discuss are, quite frankly, baby steps, but I think that they are important. So I'll mention just a few. So one possibility is to encourage the Department of Justice to subject more SCPA matters to judicial scrutiny. Get these matters in front of judges. Now, judges, of course, aren't immune from in-group favoritism, of course, but they at least do have a professional identity and a role morality that encourages keeping these biases in check. We also think that greater transparency would help. For one, the Department of Justice should provide the public with more information about negotiated resolutions of FCPA matters. For instance, what factors did prosecutors consider particularly important in arriving at the settlement price? That sort of detailed information could provide greater predictability to future FCPA defendants who wouldn't have to wonder whether they need to hire the right lawyer, the lawyer that's aligned with prosecutors, 
in order to receive a certain result. The DOJ has, to their credit, already started going down this path in the last couple of years, providing greater guidance to companies about FCPA matters, but there's more they could do. We also think that Congress should increase its oversight over the DOJ's FCPA activity. Now, prior attempts to do so have typically died in committee, but in 2021, Congress enacted this really interesting statutory provision requiring the DOJ to provide yearly reports on settlements concerning violations of the Bank Secrecy Act, so a different statute. Congress could enact a similar requirement regarding FCPA actions. I think doing so would lower the costs of congressional monitoring of the DOJ's exercises of prosecutorial discretion, and thus it could help promote greater accountability in settlement negotiations. What key takeaways would you like listeners to have from this interview and from the paper? The headline here is our empirical observation that the first listed defense attorney on these FCPA settlements tends to be politically liberal during the Obama administration and then shifts to becoming conservative during the Bush and Trump years. We can't say for sure, as I mentioned, that defendants are selecting politically aligned counsel to curry favor with prosecutors based specifically on shared political affiliation. It could be some other social or cultural factor that's closely aligned with politics. But whatever the root cause, it does appear that corporate defendants' counsel selections are strategic, and they're based on some element of shared identity. There is, as I mentioned, this integrity risk here. Policymakers should act to to better understand and address what's going on here, given that the FCPA is an anti-corruption statute. It's vital that its enforcement be based on the facts and the law rather than the identity of counsel. Our guest today has been Brian Feinstein, Assistant Professor of Legal Studies and Business Ethics at the University of Pennsylvania. We've discussed his article, In-Group Favoritism as Legal Strategy, Evidence from FCPA Settlements, which he co-authored with William Houston and Guillermo Siqueira Gicavallo, both PhD candidates at the University of Pennsylvania's Wharton School. The article is forthcoming in the American Business Law Journal, and I'll add a link to the article in the show notes for the episode. Brian, thank you for joining the Business Scholarship Podcast. It's my pleasure, Andrew. Thanks so much. Thank you for listening to another episode of the Business Scholarship Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast or leaving a rating on your favorite podcast app, or let other people know about it too. If you have suggestions for future episodes, please let me know. My email address is andrew at andrewkjennings.com, and I look forward to hearing from you. Until the next time, I'm your host, Andrew Jennings. Andrew Jennings.